the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, welcome or welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. I'm so glad to be able to take your calls at 303-873-1935. We've been talking about a lot of different things. If you'd like to join me on the program, it's 303-873-1935. Let's see who's up. Lewis, welcome to the program. Hi. Hello. Welcome. Hello, Gino. How can I help you? Yes, uh, about what you were talking about. I thought in Revelation it says that uh, the dead will rise first. I mean, that, that's actually in First Thessalonians chapter four, verse thirteen, and in First Corinthians chapter fifteen, it says the dead in Christ will rise, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the air to meet the Lord in the air. So. The, the reference that you're making to is a resurrection of the dead body. And so to your point, the Bible seems to indicate that you are a person who has both a body and a soul and a spirit, that the body that dies, it goes into the dirt or the ocean or the crematorium. And the soul, like I said earlier, and 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 talked about at length over the several passages where Paul argues to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That means you, whatever you are, substantially in soul and spirit, goes to the place of either the righteous dead or the unrighteous dead. The body is resurrected and then reunited with the soul and the spirit and then will serve as the vehicle that's appropriate for where you are. So just like you have a body that's appropriate to where you are right now, you will have a body that's appropriate to where you'll be in eternity. That's that's our heavenly body, right? Correct. Our glorified, heavenly, resurrected body. There you go. You clarified it. That's where I was having trouble with it. Okay. Understanding. Well, I hope that helps. Thank you so much. Hey, no, thank you for calling. 303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the program. 303-873-1935. Happy, happy, happy to take your call. Um, We've got a couple of open lines. Again, if you want to join me on the program, it's 303-873-1935. Let's see who's up. Robert, welcome to the program. Yeah. Hi. Um, I was reading, uh, well, I, first off, I got a lot of people that always tell me that, you know, uh, tattoos are okay to have, that there's nothing in the Bible that states anything against them. But I was reading in Leviticus uh, 1926 today, and it does state in there that tattoos are forbidden. Yeah, I actually, and it's I Leviticus wanted- 1928. Is that what you said? 
or 28. Yeah, 1928. Yeah. Sorry. And, and so, no, no, you don't have to be sorry. I just wanted, for, for people who are listening and they might be trying to look it up, I, I thought maybe, so we, let's go there for just a second. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 28, it says, You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. So, right. couple of things. The reason for the prohibition isn't given. It's likely that this was a pagan practice connected with idolatry or superstition. But we also have to think about who it's addressed to, the Jewish people, the Israelites. So when, when it so you're you're exactly right though, if we ask and we answer both in principle, why was the prohibition given? What is it about tattoos that that the that the Lord felt like, you know what? Um, don't do it. Now I'm gonna suggest to you that for, for the children of Israel Again, they were living in a culture and a society where having a tattoo became, dare I use the word, a a proclamation of love and loyalty to a foreign god. Right. And so the New Testament believers are under the Mosaic Law. There's no New Testament prohibition or or real or or reason why a person can't get a tattoo. But to your point, and I think it's a good point, well what about the principle behind the prohibition in Leviticus chapter nineteen? You know, we could use the same argument about homosexuality, couldn't we? Um is yes. there a prohibition in Leviticus about being a homosexual? The answer is yes. Well there's no such prohibition in the New Testament. Ah, oh, but there is. There is a prohibition in the New Testament about sexual immorality. So in my view, do Christians have the right to get a tattoo? In, 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 in my view, if, if they're doing it to promote worldly philosophy or superstition, um, it's a bad idea. For me to get a tattoo, it's just, it's just a cry for help at my age. So well, yeah, I mean it would be for me too at my age, but <laughs> yeah. I mean I'm not going to get one anyway. But well, just, and so if um, you're asking if you're asking the question, is it a sin to get a tattoo? I'm going to suggest to you that not necessarily. The way that I would put it is, it could be if you're getting that tattoo, and so can you get the tattoo in order to glorify God? I guess there are some people who would argue that they can. So for, for me, the tattoo issue for a Christian is different for, for a Jew. The Jew has a prohibition. You can't do it. For the Christian and the New Testament believer, I think of Romans chapter 14 and chapter 15 at the beginning. Remember, uh, Paul talks about questionable things in the Christian life. What happens when, so you said earlier, I've heard people say, hey, it's no problem for me to get a tattoo. Well, as you can imagine, there are two groups of people, those who say it is a problem for me and those who say it's it's not a problem for me. And in my view, this is one of those questionable things where each local person um, 
has to make a choice. And so Paul talks about disputes, about questionable things, and then he gives principles. Am I fully convinced that I can do this? Can I do it as unto the Lord? Will it stand the test of the judgment seat? Will it cause other people to stumble? Am I doing this by faith? Am I doing it to please myself or others? And as people are going through that list, and if they say, hey, I can... I'm, you know, I can affirm all of those things. Well, if you want to get a tattoo, hallelujah. Um, if you yeah. don't want to get a tattoo, hallelujah. And I, I was being a little tongue-in-cheek earlier, but not really when I said at my age, it's just a bad idea. Right. It's a cry well, I was for looking help. into it a little bit. Yeah. And I was looking into it a little bit deeper also, and, and it stated in that, you know, with the, well, that was another uh, another area, but it said that, you know, with the New Testament, uh, you know, that's God is looking more at your inward self instead of your outward appearance. And well, I didn't know I, if that was. Yeah, for me, I like I said, you know, in First Corinthians, Paul says this: everything is permissible for me. But not everything is beneficial. So, do I have Do I have permission to do it? Yeah. Is it helpful for me? No. I'm not convinced it's it's beneficial for me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But again, it's that's again. Each person has to go through that laundry list that I just talked about in Romans chapter 14. Hey, thank you for your call. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. The number is 303-873-1935, 303-873-1935. Happy to take your call. And um, I, I know we've had a couple of drops, and I know Kevin had called about a question about what happens when we're dead. If you'd like to call me back, happy to have you, 303 873 1935, I was talking about the subject of paradox. And with the so people wonder, well, what's the difference between a contradiction and a paradox? And of course, a paradox in the Bible, well, first of all, I guess what, what we have to think think about is a a definition so a paradox is is what something that looks like a con- contradiction but when it's properly understood proves true in, in other words the bible uses this the, the contrast if you will um the, the what's the word i'm looking for it uses paradox at times to explore the scope and nuance of truth. So think about paradox like hyperbole um, in the sense of hyperbole is you exaggerate something in order to make a point. Paradox is something that seems contradictory, but it's something that's laid side by side to show nuance So one of the most famous paradoxes in the Bible is the teaching that God is triune. There is one God. Yes, 
who eternally exists in three persons? Yes. How could that possibly be true? I don't know, but I know that it's true. There aren't three gods. There is one God. There are other examples of paradox in the Bible that on first blush seem to be contradictory, like in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verses 8 through 10. There's several where it says we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. There are several other examples like that. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 39, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Well, which was it? Was it gain or was it loss? It was both. Matthew 2, excuse me, 23, 11, the greatest among you will be your servant. 2 Corinthians twelve ten. when I am weak, then I am strong. And so lots of para- paradoxes, seeing the unseen, knowing the love of Jesus, which surpasses knowledge. Well, which is it? If it surpasses knowledge, is it knowledge? Yeah, it's both. Being strong when you're weak, dying, yet being able to give life. And so each of these paradoxes are meant to contrast something. And I'm going to suggest to you broadly that the contrast usually falls into the category of perspective, earthly an earthly perspective, and then a heavenly perspective. Is there a way of looking at this from the vantage point of the temporal? Yes. Is there a way of looking at it from the vantage point of the eternal? The answer is yes. There's a difference between our material situation and our spiritual reality. But Paul and the Bible and several other authors seem to suggest that we can experience both at the same time. How can I be in heaven when I'm on the earth? But yet the writer of Ephesians, Paul, says we are seated in heavenly places. It's not in the future tense. It's in the present tense. He basically says we're there now. How is that even possible? The book of Proverbs contains paradox among its wise sayings. One example is Proverbs chapter 11, verse 24, which says, There is one who scatters, yet increases more. John Bunyan picked up on that truth, putting this paradoxical couplet in the mouth of old honest in the Pilgrim's Progress. He says, A man there was, though some did count him mad. The more he cast away, the more he had. 
Isn't that interesting? In other words, imagine the person who keeps giving, giving, giving to the poor, giving, sacrificing, giving, giving. How can a man get rid of stuff? How can you get rid of stuff and yet have more? Well, according to the book of Proverbs, wisdom gives us the answer. 303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the air. I've got some breaking news, Producer Jim, that Odysseus has become the first American lander to reach the moon in 52 years. A number of different outlets, including USA, you know, USA Today, Reuters, a number of different outlets are um, reporting that Americans have returned to the moon, but a number of them are also reporting that we don't know the status of this um, moon launch, if you will. So have human beings returned to the moon? No, but apparently robots have returned a week after launching aboard a SpaceX rocket, the uncrewed Odysseus spacecraft, according to, um, well, this is USA Today. It's saying that it gently touched down on the surface of the moon. And so, congratulations. 303-873-1935. Oh, yep, here it is on NASA This is the NASA Twitter, now X. The X account of NASA has said, your order was delivered to the moon. (laughs) Uh, And so what is the Odysseus lunar lander? Well, it's nicknamed after the Greek hero of Homer's epic poem, the Odyssey. The Odysseus lander hitched a ride to orbit last Thursday aboard the SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket. And so, again, there you have it. 303-873-1935. That's my number if you'd like to join me on the program. 303-873-1935. I know we're coming up on a break. But um, another example of a paradox in Proverbs is found in sequential verses. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. But then it seems to be contradicted with the next verse. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Well, which is it? Which is it? Do you answer or not answer? Well... That's a, this is the paradox. It's up to the reader to discern the meaning of the instruction and then attempt to solve the paradox. 303 303-873-1935. 303-873-1935. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is kind of an unusual producer, Jim. I don't... I'm wondering if we're having some sort of technical problem. And um, we had a caller, RC, who called about a biblical perspective on stones and crystals. 
I hope you call back. Make an attempt to call back because I want to talk about your question, but I, it's not specific enough. Uh, and But I love the question. Well, you know, when you talk about a biblical perspective on stones and crystals, what does the Bible say about stones and crystals? Are there spiritual significance to them? Are there energy healing or energy uh, powers associated with them? Um, I don't know exactly what you want to know, but I happen to be a person who loves rocks and minerals. As a kid growing up, I spent a great deal of my life in the Mojave Desert. And as you can imagine, in the Mojave Desert, there's not a whole lot to do. So even as early as like eight, nine, ten years old, um, I'm, I'm thinking as early as eight years old, I, I became fascinated by rocks, minerals, and the classification of rocks and minerals. And, of course, when you're talking about rocks and minerals, you're also talking about mineralogy. You're talking about types of rocks. You know, I learned from an early, early age about um, the the three types of rocks, you know, of... of um, Volcanic rocks, sedimentary rocks, metamorphic rocks. So if you if you can call 303-873-1935, let me just give you a brief um, couple of things about what the Bible says about crystals. So the, the Bible mentions rubies in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 11, sapphires in Lamentations chapter 4, verse 7, Topaz in Job chapter 28, 19. And of course, the very famous breastplate that was born, worn uh, by the Levitical high priest that contained the 12 stones. And each stone had a name engraved on it that represented the tribe of Israel. And um, in Exodus chapter 39, verses 10 through 13, it talks about the first row was carnelian, chrysolite, and beryl. The second row was turquoise, lapis, lazul, emerald. The third uh, row was hyacinth, agate, amethyst. The fourth row was topaz, onyx, and jasper. They were mounted in gold filigree settings. And so, uh, again, the, the Bible talks about in Revelation chapter 22, verse 1, the river flowing from the heavenly throne, it says, is as clear as crystal. There used to be a song that in the middle of a sea of glass I saw a throne, and the ancient of days was seated there. So the area before the throne is sort of like a sea of glass, clear as crystal, it says in Revelation chapter 4, verse 6. And then spread out above the heads of the living creatures was something that looked like a vault, sparkling like crystal and awesome, it says in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 22. Another translation says, over the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse, something shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. 
What I would point out, though, is that the Bible never assigns mystical properties to crystals. But when you ask and you answer the question, well, what kind of properties do we assign to crystals? Well, there are mineral properties associated with crystals. There are other kinds of properties that are associated with crystals, whether magnetic or other kinds of things. So besides being beautiful mineral structures, crystals are used, obviously, in the practice of crystal healing. But crystal healing isn't science. It isn't what I would call evidential science. It isn't, uh, it's pseudoscience. So according to crystal healers, the careful placing of crystals on a patient's body is somehow supposed to stimulate the body's chakras and promote healings. But again, I think that that is nonsense. So in my view, science falls into two categories, evidence-based and not evidence-based. So is there anything in the Bible that tells us that crystals emanate good vibrations and that crystals absorb bad energy or that crystals can cleanse or reset a person's vibrations. All of those beliefs don't come from the Bible. So the Bible doesn't say that crystals are beneficial for attracting wealth, rekindling romance, or warding off evil spirits. However, I do have it on good authority that if you give certain gems to certain people, it might help your romantic life. So the Bible warns against engaging in anything that sort of reeks of the, of the, of superstition and the occult. And uh, of course the Bible condemns the practice of occultism or in Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse 10 where it says there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter in the offering or anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or is a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer that's a person who calls up the dead and then it goes on in the text and it even says who or who makes inquiry of the dead for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. So again, as I've repeatedly said, the word abomination in, um, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, is one of the strongest Hebrew words, if not the strongest Hebrew word, in order to communicate revulsion disgust. And so the use of crystals as charms, amulets, talismans 
is a type of occult practice, however benign it seems. So anything that wants to manipulate the spirit world can be categorized as witchcraft. So do I love rocks, minerals, and gems because I think that it manipulates the spirit world? No. I love rocks, minerals, and gems because they're fascinating. They're fascinating in in shapes, sizes, colors, and structure. Everything about it is cool. But when you attach a supernatural element, it becomes kind of problematic. So, again, idolatry, repeatedly, strongly, consistently forbidden in the Bible. Is it okay to have rocks, crystals for decor, wear them as jewelry? I don't see I have a problem with that. Is there anything magical about them? Again, it all depends on how you define the word magical. This is Gino Geraci. Thanks for joining me. 303-873-1935. I'll be back. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. I'm still on the rock kick. You know, um, I know a person called in and and asked about, um, you know, the biblical perspective, if you will, on stones and crystals. And I hope that what I said was sufficient. But I wanted to talk just a little bit more about um, birthstones. Now, you know, people ask about birthstones and they're usually associated with the 12 month Gregorian calendar. And according to the American gym society, there are gems that are associated with each person's birth that allegedly have powers. January is garnet happiness, health, wealth, February, amethyst, peace, courage, stability, March, aquamarine, bloodstone or preservation of health. April is diamond, and then it gives the stuff. May, emerald, June, pearl. And I would note that this is the only gem, if you will, that isn't made from, that, that, that's made by a living being. Uh, July, ruby, August, peridot. Uh, September, sapphire. October, tourmaline. November, topaz or citrine. And December, tanzanite or turquoise. So it would appear that different birthstone attributions are associated with different cultures. And again, even gemstone powers are associated across different cultures. And the Bible doesn't mention gemstones, but their widely accepted origin story has roots in biblical history, like I alluded to in Exodus chapter 28, which had instructions for the sacred garment. And then um, Aaron had a, a breastplate that were 12 stones that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And a first century Jewish historian made the connection between these 12 stones and the 12 months of the year and the 12 signs of the Zodiac. 
But the Bible doesn't make any such connection. And so is wearing a gemstone or a birthstone sinful? No, not in and of itself. To wear any kind of birthstone for fun or fashion isn't sinful. Again, the superstitious belief that a birthstone has spiritual powers, well, that's kind of like idolatry. And believers know that wearing a gemstone won't change the circumstance of their life unless it's a great big diamond or it's a great big sapphire and it's a great big emerald and then they trade it in to pay the rent or whatever. So the Bible teaches that everything is under God's sovereign control, unaffected by people's plans or natural world, including the objects that are created in that world. And so the Lord seems to allow or cause things to happen according to his plan. Birthstones, like gemstones, have no spiritual power. So, back to the whole subject again of paradox. I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about that. Um, you know, one of the things that are examples of paradox in the Bible. Um, well, I didn't get to talk about Paul's quote of Epimenides, which is a very famous quote where Paul says in Titus chapter 1, verse 12, that all, one of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons, which presents a paradox. Epimenides was himself a Cretan. And so his statement that Cretans are always liars seems self-contradictory. Is Epimenides telling the truth about his own lying? How can there be a truth-telling liar? Or is it possible that this paradoxical description of his countrymen is both true and false in certain respects. <laughs> and uh, I think of the paradoxes that are mentioned about the very life and ministry of Jesus himself. Jesus hungered, but he fed multitudes. Jesus thirsted, yet he's the water of life. Jesus grew weary, but he's our rest. Jesus paid tribute, but he's the king of kings. Jesus prayed, yet here's our prayers. Jesus wept, but dries our tears. Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver, but he redeems the world. He was led 
as a sheep to the slaughter, and yet he's the good shepherd. He was put to death, and yet he raises the dead. I think that's interesting. 303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the air. And again, a couple of other ones. In Romans chapter 3, verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. You And then James in chapter 2, verse 24 says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Well, how is that possible? Which is it? Um, John twelve forty seven. I did not come to judge the world. In John chapter 9, verse 39, for judgment... I have come into this world. Matthew 7:14 The way is hard that leads to life. Matthew 11:30 My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew 7:1 Judge not that you be not judged. John 7:24 Judge with a right judgment. And so, again, when we're dealing with the subject of what some people would call, quote-unquote, contradictions, I'm wondering if some of those answers might come as we explore the possibility of nuance. One of the most perplexing paradoxes in the Bible concerns this tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. We see this in salvation, where in John chapter 1, verse 12, John writes, To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. But then John 1.13 describes these children as born, not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. So which is it? One verse says that we have to believe to be saved. And yet the next one says it's not our decision. It's God's decision. It's a paradox. Well, which one is true? They're both true. (laughs) Thanks for joining me. Hopefully, prayerfully, I'll be back tomorrow taking your calls, answering your questions. Thanks, Jim. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.